Yo, yo, yo. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Dice House Monday podcast. We are live. I'm here with my illustrious co-hosts, Joel and Jay. And boy, do we have a special guest here this evening, Mr. David Tor. How are you, boy? Good, guys. Really good. Appreciate the uh, whiskey to calm the nerves. It's been, uh, <laughs> it's been a little minute since I've been on, uh, you know, on air. So, uh, yeah, appreciate having me, man. Yeah, yeah, nice thank you so on, much man. for coming. Welcome, welcome. We're really looking forward to this episode. Just before we continue, I just want to do a little intro on David. David is a serial entrepreneur who grew you cook together with his partners from a garage in the southern suburbs into an industry leader, an expert in building leading organizations while trying to implement positive social impacts. David has really taken the African economy by storm. We're looking forward to finding out who he is as a person and how he became the businessman he is today. Cool. So let's hit it. Let's do it. Deep dive. <laughs> Take anything, us back. We, anything we didn't get right there. <laughs> no, that was sweet. Dude. That's way better than my LinkedIn bio. Copy paste that shit, I do want to jump into something you were mentioning before you came here. What are you up yeah. to in your personal life that's fucking up? Cool. <laughs> All righty. So, look, I mean, I'm involved in a, in a new venture that I'm kind of like permanently committed to. I've been. I've been kind of playing the field since since I um, exited UCook about uh, two years ago, and I've been involved in kind of various industries, which has been fantastic. Got to experience, you know, everything from kind of cosmetics through payments uh, and kind of everything in between. And now I'm I find myself in a kind of another early stage venture. We just we just raised a, uh, a pretty substantial kind of pre seed round, and um, you know we're in the early kind of quagmires of getting things going, and. In that chaos, when there's kind of like lots of congestion and there's just a ton of things to get done, your days kind of slip away from you. You end up having lots and lots of conversations because you're still kind of trying to find cadence and rhythm and everything kind of needs to be over-explained and everyone needs to feel like they're kind of in the loop. And what that means, what that kind of translates out as is like too many meetings, right? So your day is filled with these kind of like 30-minute meetings context shifting is disruptive so what i've been trying to do unsuccessfully <laughs> is uh build a kind of routine that gives me some space to kind of think and actually get shit done so i've been waking up at at kind of 5 a.m every day and trying to get in like three hours before i actually get to the office which has been i mean amazing in that you're fucking crystal clear like everything is just lucid at that hour of the morning and you do end up getting a lot of stuff done but i just crash and burn and wither <laughs> so you guys are dealing with a kind of you know husk of my you know prior self unfortunately but uh yeah so it's been good but also just i get really tired yeah, in the imagine. evening yeah yeah and the diet sort of throughout the day in terms of maybe getting that energy up is there something that you're following or sure i wish i was i wish i had, I wish I had it all worked out no i mean i i have uh i eat relatively well i exercise i'd say like kind of four times a week that's pretty good um but i eat a lot like a glutton like weird <laughs> amounts of food you know what i mean it's welcome to the club i think yeah, i asked yeah I, I asked that because obviously guys that are super busy it's hard to keep sort of an eating schedule yeah. so you're often like buying out or doing loads of yeah. things that like that no food is like a, it's like a comfort blanket for me you know i've got an unhealthy fucking relationship with food i'm just lucky that my kind of natural proclivity is like fucking vegetables and like fucking meats and shit otherwise that'd be fucking massive you know what I mean? that'd be an absolute fucking sphere if I wasn't eating relatively well, like through choice, but I eat two me I eat two meals every sitting. So it's like you uh, eat it's two meals every sitting, every single sitting. It's it also it's a little bit awkward if you're having like a kind of oh let's meet for breakfast. You're like hanging out. The person's finished. You're just shoveling that shit in. You know what I mean? You're having yeah. to talk in between mouthfuls. No yeah. one likes that. So it's what not- is that? Your entree <laughs> and then your main, or your main and your dessert? It's always just double up on the main, bro. I just don't even play games. You know what I mean? I'm just <laughs> for sure. Yeah. No, that's sick. Okay, before we get into the big stuff, we wanted to know a little bit about your childhood and cool. you know how you became the man you are today. Like I said earlier, so our, my question was, who is David Tor Jr.? Yes, yes. I mean, an absolute fucking reprobate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Jason knew me when I was a child. Um, look, I think... Uh, Both reprobates. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Jeez. Um, no, look, I mean, I, I had a pretty kind of unorthodox kind of upbringing um, in, in that like I was kind of... Fortunate and unfortunate, I got to kind of experience a myriad of kind of different, um, I guess, kind of schooling environments. I went to, you know, four high schools, didn't, uh, you know, didn't necessarily kind of toe the line, I guess. I was, you know, pretty good academically, but 
wasn't really good at kind of like following, uh, you know, kind of schools. So was the family moving a lot or why no, were you? No, no, no. Just, no. just David getting expelled. <laughs> the family was moving a lot. Uh, salesman. No, no, not at all, man. Not at all. No, I was a, just a, I was an obnoxious little dude, hey? Um, look, I think my dad died when I was kind of like 13. I think I didn't, I, you know, I think that definitely kind of impacted my, my outlook. I, I mean, my mother was kind of egalitarian and, and kind of very free-spirited and, you know, just wanted us to kind of you know, kind of do whatever we, you know, she, she cared huge amounts about us, but there wasn't really kind of many boundaries and, and, you know, kind of instructions coming from, from her. So, so yeah, I mean, I guess byproduct of probably a few different kind of, you know, externalities, but, um, just didn't behave well in school, you know, which was, which was the, the upside was that I really, really did get to experience kind of variety. I mean, I went to Waldorf, mm. I went to Abbott's, mm. I went to Somerset College. I went to Redham. I mean, I went to like all of these different schools that yeah. were very different culturally. And I got to meet a, a kind of very, very interesting group of people. And I, and, and hence I, you know, my, my friend circle is, is very kind of eclectic and, and, um, yeah, it's kind of all over the place, but, but it was cool. I mean, I think the, the schooling thing, um, wasn't really a kind of precursor for much. I mean, I kind of finished school, started studying. Um, dropped out of university after two weeks, traveled for four, you know, the better part of four years. So I wanted to ask you when you went on those travels, because I think a lot of people go on those travels sort of looking for an answer or looking to see what steps they're going to take next. What was your mindset when you went traveling? Did you go wanting to just break away and experience the world or did you have a plan in, in mind that you wanted to go find something and bring it back? Um, no, um, again, I wish I could say that I was, uh, you know, I had some plan. I didn't. I think... Um, just make it up quick. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I guess for me, the big thing was, is like, I was kind of pretty anti-establishment. I didn't, I, mean, I kind of rejected, like, I guess, kind of, just kind of like corporate culture. I didn't really want to exist as a kind of small cog in a big machine and kind of just grind away for years. You know, the initial kind of, you know, what I was studying would have, would have pushed me into, I guess, a big kind of financial firm or, and, uh, and I just didn't really want to do it, right? I, I didn't want to kind of, commit to a future that looked really gray and kind of very monotonous so, so I, the, the one i'm living yeah <laughs> maybe maybe man a lot of people a lot of people, um, a lot yeah. Of people yeah yeah look I, I mean to give you scope like i think there was the there were obviously these big kind of inflection points that really kind of adjusted my behavior i think the most like the the one that kind of sticks out that's really really kind of stark and just like present in my mind and i can like remember it like it was yesterday was so coming back was really a kind of like a financial decision because my mother was, was, wasn't kind of doing well at the time. And, and I, I had a trust, but that kind of like ceased because, you know, it said in the trust that post tertiary, uh, you know, kind of education, the dude has to go and get a job or, and, and so I have, there was no money coming in and my kind of, you know, emancipated Thailand, you know, kind of existence came to a, an abrupt end and came back and I was work, working as like a kind of waiter in two different restaurants and I actually ended up uh, serving a guy called Josh Kempster, you know, I don't know Josh, no. it's from Redham and it was just super fucking embarrassing, man. I mean, I was, uh, <laughs> we walked in, handing this dude a burger. We were in the same year <laughs> and he was like, so dude, like, um, Oh, like, what are you up to? And I was like, Oh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, I, you know, there's a bunch of stuff. Uh, it's fucking. And I just went back and I was like, Fuck, well, this is gonna be you, dude. You're gonna be like a fucking, you're gonna be like a debonair's like fucking manager or some shit. Like, what are you, what's gonna fucking happen to your life? And I think my parents had kind of given, given up on me in that point. And, um, yeah, and then I made a fucking strong 180, right? I had like, I think, um, really, really made the kind of conscious decision to kind of apply myself. I think inherently a lot of us are kind of like scared of, of kind of failing. I think failure is this big kind of like ominous thing that exists in the back of all of our minds. And it's often the kind of constraining faculty that kind of prohibits us from taking action. You know what I mean? It's this, it's this, you know, what, what happens if I kind of go all in and nothing and, and the kind of end result is that I failed. Right. And, and mm. I think that was always very apparent because the kind of general narrative like was that I was a kind of piece of shit and, you know, I was You're framed in a certain way. Yeah, and I think that kind of like is ingrained in your being. You start kind mm. of believing what the kind of external narrative is. And and I think that probably, you know, was was one of the big factors that kind of stopped me from doing stuff until I was 25. And then and then and then I had nothing to fucking lose. And I was, you know, kind of on the bones of my ass. 
had no money, uh, you know, working as a fucking waiter. And then I, and then I did, uh, you know, then I did a bunch of stuff. So did you come to that realization before you found you cook or the idea of you cook? Or did you find the idea and then say, okay, hold on, let me use this or, and get something done. I was like a rabid fucking hungry rat. You know what I mean? Like I was like a, a rat without cheese, dude. I was just looking for something to seek my dirty little teeth into. You know what I mean? It wasn't yeah. like this, um, it wasn't this like great epiphany whereby like some specific kind of experience sparked like this kind of, you know, unfolding, which maybe became Yuko. I think I was very speculative. I think I've always been like reasonably kind of good at, at um, yeah, it's just like knowledge synthesis, like really taking stuff in and kind of like breaking it down into its pieces. And and at that time, you know, there was obviously like a few kind of things that I thought were interesting. There was Woolworths that was absolutely crushing it. I mean, mm. it was selling tons of meals. We were in a fucking technical recession, but people mm. were still buying fucking free range potatoes. Um, Yappy Chef was like, you know, was, was one of the only e-commerce success stories selling like avocado holders and like expensive cook, like, you know, cooking shit. So I think this like HelloFresh and there was like Blue Apron and there was like Linus Mudcast and there was like all this hype around this kind of dinner kit model. There was mm. Daily Dish at the time, there was Day Today, so there were existing players that like if, if you were like, you know, if you were, it didn't take a kind of like, you know, uh, someone with, you know, immaculate intelligence to work out that the guys that were doing it at that moment in time weren't really doing it Probably. exceptionally. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it was like a superficial kind of market analysis really that drove that decision, right? It was like, what can I do given my like limited resources that I could potentially start on like a kind of micro level out of a care like we did. We ended up like operating out of kind of VC's mom's fucking garage next to a Chrysler for fuck's yeah. sake. You know Which what I mean? Epic. That's All good stories start in a garage. Yeah. Health That's and safety hazard. Jesus. I mean, <laughs> talk about like food safety standards, man. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was very much like a quantitative kind of like analytical, um, decision. Yeah, that's um, interesting. And, and going into you, Cook, I have to do a shout out quickly to one of our listeners. We actually asked them pre pod if they had any questions for you. So I'm going to just ask one because this is uh, perfect timing. Jessica, she asked, what pushed you to go through with this idea? And then how did you grow and expand it? So I know that's quite a broad question, sure. but I think moving into you, Cook, take us through, sure. you know, those first couple of years, what are startups like? Sure. And how you sort of got through those those years? So in essence, like I think if you think about anything that's anything that's growing, anything that's evolving, anything that's kind of like at its like inception, it always you're always just looking for kind of some kind of validation, right? Like you're you're looking for there's different layers of validation. Initially, validation is social, right? It's social. Your 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 proofing is through conversation. You're having conversations initially with people that you need to convince to join your team. That's probably the initial gate. Like, if you think that something makes sense, can you believe, can you convince other people that it makes sense? Mm. Like, that then gives you, like, I guess, kind of like one level of validation, right? The second level of validation is convincing customers whether or not what you guys all think makes fucking sense yeah, yeah. actually fucking makes sense. Like, are people willing to put their money where their mouth is? And in Yukok's case, that fucking statement is quite fucking literal. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. I guess the, 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 the latter, like the, 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 like post that, it's obviously like the investors, right? Like, yeah. can you then convince other people to kind of commit capital to that idea? And sometimes those things are not in that sequence, right? Sometimes it's, Sometimes if you're kind of a proven founder and you've got a track record, you can have a hypothesis and you can immediately go to an investor without even having a fucking Just having team, the name. Right? Yeah. You can have a yeah. fucking pitch deck. I mean, I don't know how much I should be saying, but like <laughs> the last fucking round that we raised, we raised the $3 million pre-seed round. Like we raised a $3, $3 million pre-seed round with two people, a pitch deck and no market validation. Absolutely. Was this nothing. for the e-commerce? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we raised like well, fucking at that point, like 65 odd million bucks, right? Like with, uh, well, not about 60 million bucks with, with nothing more than like a hunch, really, right? A, an educated hunch with like some kind of, you know, some, uh, it's kind of extrapolated analysis based on kind of information that was on the internet, really, right? Yeah. So, so those things don't have to happen in that sequence. But in you, the case of you, Cook, it was very much about me going, okay, I think this is true, but I don't really have any fucking self-confidence, right? Like, I don't believe in myself. 
Like I lack the kind of like personal conviction to take this on wholeheartedly unless I can go out and convince other people that this is interesting, that it makes sense, that it's worth sacrificing time and energy to kind of pursue. And then, and that, and I managed to do that. Look, I mean, Yukuk was a fucking motley crew. It was like literally the school of delinquents. You know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> like if, if you were to take a handful of the most unlikely people to make anything of themselves in Cape Town, and you know, like we were, we were that that cluster. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was myself. VC was like. Fuck, I don't know. He was like fucking doing architecture and then he was fucking doing this shit. I mean, he was fucking, he was as clueless as I was. You know, we met under, under very interesting circumstances. We were on a barge in Thailand. I was living in like the shit stain of fucking the underpants of like Bangkok in a place called Bangken. It was literally like toilet store, right? <laughs> he was staying in the Mandarin fucking Oriental with like Olivia, like absolutely fucking living the best life, right? <laughs> And, uh, and we were talking about food. I was actually like yearning for like Western cuisine because I like had no fucking money. And I was like, oh, I just want to have like a fucking pizza, like a good pizza, you know, not some like shitty fucking Thai, like, you know, emulation. Um, and, and then, you know, I don't know. We met, we connected. He was cool. I think he was also like kind of searching for something to do, something to kind of like sink his kind of time and energy into. And then... And then we met, like, then Katie, who was a friend of my girlfriend at the time, was, uh, I think, pretty instrumental in that she had, like, fucking a degree. Like, she had, like, basic credentials. She had the shit that people are looking for when yeah, they yeah. want to invest in fucking businesses. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. she, like, worked at HSBC. Like, she was, like, kind of legit. Ticked I don't know where the, the fuck she the joined us. Corporate you know what I mean? boxes, yeah. <laughs> and the, probably the most kind of, like, out there individual that was a part of our early stage kind of team was a guy called Menno Brower, right? Oh. Who, AKA, some people might, you know, remember him as the kind of, like, genius from Bishops who, like, fucking absolutely aced maths and spoke to fucking Mark <laughs> Shuttleworth whilst he was in space. True fucking story. <laughs> Crazy. No, he did, but the dude's an eight ball, right? He was in fucking <laughs> California trimming buds prior to joining fucking YouTube, dude. He refused to fucking wear shoes for the first like fucking three months. And we're like, dude, we're like carving up fucking meat and shit, dude. You've got to put on some fucking shoes, bro. You know what I mean? Like, we're obviously in a fucking garage already. Yeah. Like, you come into work every day with no shoes. I mean, it's just... We're even feeling uncomfortable about yeah. the health and safety fucking hazard. You know what I mean? So, weird fucking crew... But they believed in it, dude. And I think the one secret fucking interesting thing that really tied us all together in this like very unique way was that we had nothing to lose. Mm. We were completely without the fear of failure, which is not like I'm not operating in that space now. Like now I've got like some of the biggest investors in the world that are backing us, like incredible fucking profiles that are built billion dollar businesses and much more developed markets. And I'm fucking scared. You know, like every mm. single step is one that I take with trepidation. That wasn't the case when we started Yukok. So mm. to answer what was a, you know, short question in a very, very fucking long way, <laughs> you're constantly looking for validation yeah. and validation comes in waves. And initially it's about team for us. It was then obviously about proving it within the kind of customer space. We read, I mean, we, we, Fuck, it was 50 grand. 50 grand was our initial fit-up cost. Like, I mean, I don't even think that's possible anymore. That I'm proud of, you know what I mean? Which yeah. startup starts with 50 grand? <laughs> it was like literally our, like, you know, what we had. And uh, yeah, and then it was, and then, it, then, it, then it, you know, very, very lucky to, to get the initial investment from, from Silvertree, you know? And we'll always be eternally grateful to those guys for supporting what was a, it was a very risky bet, right? If you just, in the, initially you're betting on team and TAM, Right. Mm. That's your fucking VC 101 straight play. That's how people think. Right. If you're, if you're a traditional venture capitalist, you look at market momentum and you look at the credentials of yeah. the team because that's all you have. You don't have the time to really go fucking deeper than that. Right. You go like, how big is the market? Do we think that these guys can fucking take a percentage of it? Sweet. Okay. Here's your ticket. There was no market. Right. There was fucking two tiny startups with like 300 fucking subscribers. No market. There was an existing play abroad, but no existing market. You had to build a market. You had to educate customers. And none of us were fucking credentialed. We were a fucking motley you know. crew. Yeah, exactly. So, so anyway, so that was the kind of journey, I guess. <clears throat> and that was the gap in the market. Like you said, I mean, there was the, there was no market. So that was what you were visualizing was the gap. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and also like, fuck, I mean, I think a lot of like, like retrospects, uh, is a thing, right? Like I think, I think a lot of our initial predictions were accurate. I think that we were very good. I think that the, the kind of the, the guttural 
um, assumption that we understood who we were selling to was accurate. Because I was selling to my like mom, right? I was selling to like VC's mom. I was selling to people that I understood. I understood what mattered to them. Mm. Like I think one of the early, early kind of like interesting things that we managed to get right was like almost kind of making diets more accessible, right? Like people, and I'm not even just talking about like kind of health, like I'm like people want to eat a specific way. It was like things like, I'm interested in kind of like sustainable produce. Like I want to know that the stuff is well sourced. I yeah. want to know that like the farms that we take Farm the product fork. from, exactly all of that stuff. Like that didn't even mean fuck. That was barely happening. You know what I mean? I want to do banting. Like we could, we could enable that. We could make that kind of turnkey. You know, we could really, really make that decision a convenient one. Mm. So I think that the initial kind of like thesis on the customer was right. Obviously, we made a million fucking mistakes, right? Like, as you do, I think that we were also willing to pay ourselves fucking peanuts, dude. Mm. Um, like, we were willing to pay ourselves, like, I mean, like, not even, you know, oh, fuck, I mean, it's maybe even embarrassing. Like, I think we were paying ourselves, for the first six months, I think we were paying ourselves eight grand a month post-investment, right? Yeah. So, and our initial investment was three million bucks. Right. So, I mean, again, in the, like if you dollarize that, I mean, it's fucking, yeah. it's, 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 you know, it's nothing. Um, we're super cheap resources because we know, knew that we couldn't really demand more for our time. Um, and, uh, and we had a good kind of read on the customer, you know, and so all of the capital was pretty much just spent on kind of custom acquisition. We had three, we moved to three warehouses in the first year. So we had three new locusts. We started in a bigger look. Okay. Oh, like 250. And then it was like, okay, 600 squares. And it was like, so literally it was like, it was pretty meteoric that the rate of uptake post us fucking up like, you know, and like kind of cutting our teeth. And we also had that, like, it's also interesting, right? Like pre taking cash on, we fucked around in that garage for eight months. And even though you look back and you're like, ah, oh, we didn't like, we we're just fucking idiots. You know what I mean? The fundamental systems, like the kind of small, like processes. micro processes were cultivated in this very, very safe kind of contained environment. Right. Like we actually had the second bow and arrow adage, right? We had so much time to pull back the arrow before we had to release it, yeah, yeah. which is probably advantageous you know, yeah. if I look back at it now. Yeah. No, and that first capital investment you said was three million. Yeah. What, you know, what ate that up the most in the beginning? Marketing, bro. Marketing. I mean, we were just fucking going, man. So you'd say that would be if anyone getting an investment, going starting a startup, that would be your your starting point would be because obviously it's tailored to every different business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, in essence, like I think if you if you're taking money from VCs, <laughs> like I think <laughs> no, because that's an interesting thing as well that we are definitely not. I don't I have no idea how that process cool. works. You know, to sort of get investment from a VC, yeah. like that whole process. Sure. Okay, so <laughs> you can think of VCs like a pyramid scheme, right? So what happens is. Fund one comes over and they say, you know, this is great. Here's your money. And, you know, and then they're like, okay, like you need to go and acquire X amount of customers. And regardless of whether or not that process is efficient or not efficient, they're just really fucking pushing you to acquire those users almost at all costs, right? Yeah. Like, like the only thing that matters for them is if that they return their fund. And sometimes that return is hypothetical. Like, they don't have to have actual returns. They need to have returns on valuation. So fund one gives you capital. They give you million rand, right? They push you to grow. They push you to grow. They push you to grow. They want you to raise from fund two. You go and raise from fund two. You raise it four times the valuation. They haven't returned their capital. But now the equity that they initially kind of invested you is worth, is worth X. Is worth X. So there's this unnatural external pressure to constantly grow and that's always that's sometimes at the cost of other things that matter more in the right? business yeah. like sometimes you haven't even really established a legitimate product market fit the solution or the problem that you're solving maybe isn't as much of a problem as you forecasted for instance like promotion and discounts are such a big thing with an e-commerce, right? So you've got, often what happens is that you acquire customers unnaturally because you're not actually trading with kind of, you're not trading on uh, a traditional kind of straightforward, like transactional basis where the value of the good is worth X. The customer is willing to buy the product from you at the value, at, the, at what, what its prescribed value is. What often happens is the value of good is X, 
people are buying from an existing kind of supplier that they're very happy with. They're very happy with, you know, sort buying and kind of sourcing product from ex and now you come and you discount the product by 40%. That is an easy way to acquire customers, right? Because it's, it's pure, it's, it's very, yeah. very kind of like value driven. Mm. Often what happens is if you remove the promotional discount, you stop discounting the product, people don't want to buy it from you anymore. And that's, you know, that's come sometimes in the case of kind of, you know, it can be products, it can be SaaS, it can be services, whatever it is. So, so sometimes really, really just trying to grow without really kind of like believing with conviction that you've successfully actually kind of attracted a customer profile that's sticky, that's happy to pay what you need to earn to make money. You know, that's not a good scenario. The balance, yeah. And that, and that, and that happens a lot in, 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 in investment in environments, right? This is, uh, yeah. Is that pressure, which is not helpful? Yeah, no, exactly. And, and always having to present to the VC team that might not actually understand your business. Sure. So from that perspective, they're following profits and financial statements and they're not actually understanding the food business or how it works internally. Yeah. What are the ways to go? Who, who else do you go to then? You know, there's private investment through friends, family, or there's... So, so because why just go the, the VC way at all the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a, t it's a totally good question. Look, I mean, I think it's... it's, it's, it's uh, it's very much a question around quantum and the size of the check that you're looking for, right? Like the best money that you can take is normally your own cash because the way in which you would treat, you're going to treat your own capital is with huge amounts of sensitivity. Like if you're able to kind of like validate a hypothesis and do that in a lean way, where you know, without a question of a doubt, that if you apply large amounts of finance, the growth doesn't actually kind of like come at the, the cost of attrition. Like you're not going to kind of like lose customers along the way. Hmm. You're actually, you've managed to successfully build a product that's sticky, whereby you're going to have like kind of repeat purchase. If you can do that with as little po capital as possible, that is always going to be the best solution. And that capital comes from you know, it's yours, it's, you know, maybe kind of like friends and family, uh, maybe there's a kind of like tactical strategic investor that can kind of give you a little bit of money, but they can also give you kind of insight and guidance because they've got the kind of like insight lane in the space that you're trading in. So I would definitely advocate for strategic um, or, or just operating on a very, very lean basis until such time as you have real conviction mm. that scaling this out with substantial amounts of cash is the smartest thing at that time. Exactly. Yeah. And another thing I wanted to ask, because I was actually listening to Brian Chesky's uh, pod with Steve Bartlett, the founder of Airbnb. And it related to this part because obviously he was a part of a startup. It was a two-man start and obviously they've scaled to be listed on the stock exchange. But one of the things that he spoke about, which I was interested in, was how you kept your balance in terms of life-work balance. And was there a lot of sacrifice in your sort of relationships, family, yeah. friends, girlfriend? And how did you sort of control that over the eight years of launching you cook into? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think if we're going to be kind of like, if we're going to be statistically correct, if we're just going to look at the information that's kind of like available and we're going to make a decision based on what is true for the better part of businesses that are worth more than a billion dollars if we like set the benchmark really high yeah and we say that the gate is a billion dollars and then we analyze the behaviors of all of the founders that have got businesses to that point yeah i think that the one very clear distinguishing variable that sets some people apart from the rest is the amount of time and energy that they're spending yeah. on that startup right exactly. so to be honest the question around balance is is a is a almost like a kind of pseudo question because you're not gonna you're you're not optimizing for balance. Yeah, you're optimizing for gains, right? Yeah. At almost at all costs. I mean, again, depending on what your kind of like ambition is, and there's like so many different fucking scenarios, right? Yeah. But if we just take the kind of if we just look at the information and we look at all of the stories, the success cases of, the, of, the, of these guys. There's very often this kind of like kamikaze-esque mentality that these guys have, right? There's this crazy laser focus and ridiculous amount of time that people are spending kind of getting from A to B to C to D. I mean... So was that you? 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's like for me, if I think like what are the credentials of like a kind of founder that I think's kind of potentially got what it takes to kind of like really make it big. And again, for me, like I don't think that I've made it big, right? Like we managed to exit a business for like kind of twelve odd million dollars. From fifty thousand Rand. Sure, sure. No, no. Look, look again. I guess like kind of from, hum- a burger. <laughs> from humble means. From humble means. Yeah, no, sure. But um you know, I don't at all consider myself a kind of like founder that's managed to get to, I'm not able to satiate my ambition at this point, right? Like I'm, I'm definitely not where I want to be. I think that the current, the current platform that I'm kind of like executing off the back of, it's definitely got the potential to be big. Um, we have the right investors. We've got a pro, you know, a kind of like project that speaks to the market. And when I say the market, I mean like, you know, Africa, more broadly speaking, it's not kind of like ring fencing the, I don't know, 100,000 kind of, you know, white dudes that are wanting to kind of buy dinner kit and essay. But if I look at like big profiles, guys that are really done well, and I've been fortunate enough to interface with a lot of these people, you know, some of them have invested in us. We've got about, you know, $6 billion founders, most of which are in e-commerce that are, that are in this current startup. And the, the, the qualifying, if I look at the kind of like qualifying criteria, if I look at the kind of like common attribute, it's definitely like unreasonable dedication, um, unreasonable commitment yeah. to the cause, right? Fanatical commitment to the cause. So sure, I think that the balance equation becomes something that's kind of accessible once you successfully manage to reach enough scale. But I think if you want to go from zero to one, if you want to, if you want to build a rocket ship and you want like a crazy trajectory, you got to be. It's in. not. It's going to take unnatural attention. It's yeah. not going to take. A, it's not going to take. Oh well, you know, I need. I've got this like you know eight hours, and I need to optimize. No, like you're going to be working a lot more than that, yeah. and you're going to be stressing, fucking twenty four seven, right? Yeah. You're going to be. You're going to be like a fucking manic. You're going to be an insane. You're going to. It's going to like if you're if you're not having bad dreams about the things that could potentially kind of capitulate what you're doing at the moment. I don't think that you are invested to the point that you need to be. Yeah. And I, that sounds shitty, right? But I, it's like, it's not a truth that I've observed anecdotally. It's something that I've witnessed in almost all of the success cases. And again, you know, there's always anomalies. There's yeah, always outliers, yeah. right? No, but, for sure. Yeah. Maybe you didn't, <clears throat> just going back to that, maybe it's not based on balance, but what afforded you the resilience through that? Because, I mean, you know, that, as you put it, to be that, that much of a fanatic and put all your time and effort into it, right, takes a lot. <laughs> but I mean, resilience comes into it and, not, and maybe that's just the type of person you are? No. No, it's a good question. It's a very good question. What drives you, right? Like, what is the thing that actually, like, gets you going? This is a very interesting topic because I think... It's something that, and again, it's like, if you really, like, if you really chip away at the truth, if you're able to kind of like really, really uncover what it is that drives a lot of people that are kind of building things from, you know, from scratch and, and, and they're, they're, they're fanatically dedicated to the, the success of this venture that they've kind of birthed. I think a lot of the time it comes from insecurity. Right. I think a lot of the time it comes from this like feeling of lack, like this, this like need to externally validate your value, your worth within the world. It's definitely what, what drives me. I think that the, 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 the real impetus, if I'm like fucking honest, if I'm truthful about like what makes me go, it's definitely the need to constantly prove that, that I am, um, you know, all that I kind of like, all that I kind of wish to be, that makes sense. Yeah, right? I've got this kind of like fork of this projected kind of like version of myself that I really want to become, right? And every single day, if I'm not living up to that kind of like, you know, probably quite idealistic, um, you know, kind of forecasted sense of self, then I, then I feel shit. Like it, I'm hypersensitive to, 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 to these small instances of failure in my life. Like if I have a bad meeting, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm not able to kind of like deliver on a piece of work to the extent that I want to deliver on it. And then, and I get, and and that's validated through kind of like, you know, people giving me feedback. It makes me feel like 
it makes me feel really, really shit. Yeah. So like, I, I think I, for me, I think it's insecurity. And, and to be honest, like, I think potentially that might be something that is kind of like quite commonplace. Yeah, it's interesting because on one of Joe Rogan's podcasts, he had a guest and he was talking about when you go to heaven, there's going to be a mirror and on the other side of the mirror is going to be the person you could have been. And it was like, Heavy. <laughs> and you don't want to look like, you don't want to not look like that yeah. person on the other side of the mirror. David Goggins also goes on about it. So I'll tell you guys <laughs> an interesting story, right? And this is maybe something that, you know, maybe I, I don't know if I could do it, but I, I'll try my best to. Um, my, so my, my family dynamic is an interesting one. And then like my, my dad was a, somebody like a bastard, like literally technically a bastard, right? The son of an affair. Dad came down, had an affair with my mom, had me, had a family in the UK, never got to meet my brother and sister. He died. They found out about me. I wanted to meet them. Didn't happen. You know, fucking banged on the door for years. Eventually, you know, they caved and I've met my brother and sister. My brother is the president of Bloomberg. He's the, he is the president of the biggest fintech in the world, right? He's um, been running the business for 15 years. Wow. Probably makes, Just... fuck, I don't know, north of, I don't know. He makes more money than God. I mean, he's super fucking wealthy, 55 years old, a lot older okay, than I am. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, it was fascinating interfacing with him because he still works and again, I say like, you know, we're not, you know, we met twice. Yeah. Once was at a restaurant. Last time was at his family's house. It was this recent or was this in the last couple of years? Dude, this or? was two months ago. Two months ago oh, was the wow. last oh, time. Oh, wow. All recent. Super fucking recent. I met him this year for the first time and then I met him a second time. Our business is domiciled in the UK. So I'm there every three months for like board meetings. Which fucking chat GPT takes the fucking minutes out of coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, so... And this is like the pinnacle of fucking success, right? This guy is literally leading one of the biggest businesses in the world at the fucking top. Yeah. 26,000 person fucking organization, $13 billion in revenue every year, probably worth, you know, 250 plus million. I'm on Bloomberg. Massive. Yeah, huge. And <laughs> so, and I was like, JP, like, what is it? You know, you're 55. You've got a fucking, you know, fucking five story house in Belgravia. You've got a fucking, you know, house and niece what the fuck is it what like why are you doing this you know yeah, what i mean yeah you don't see your kids a lot like what is it like why are you still going you know and i think one of the things that's like i don't know is is interesting and maybe i relate to it and on a fucking micro way is like if this has become the thing if like your work has become the thing that tells you that you're like all right that like that explains your identity that becomes your unique identifier like, if you don't have that, what do you have? Yeah. Which is super sad in some ways, right? Here's a guy, and again, fuck, I, it's like, you know, make sure this doesn't circulate. But here's a guy <laughs> um, who is fucking brilliant, absolutely fucking, in, like, you know, intelligent, beyond comprehension, super fucking switched on, lovely dude, cares about his family, um, but is working still like, you know, six to seven days a fucking week, yeah. every fucking week. Yeah. Right. And he's 55 years old and he's got all the money in the world. So I guess one of the things that's what that made me realize is like, shit, you know, maybe ambition is a little bit of a sickness, right? Mm. Like maybe it's like something that like needs to really, really be kind of observed with caution, right? Like maybe we need to treat it as something that's not just positive, because inherently, like, our life flashes and it's gone. Like, life is so quick. Like, I remember being 18. I remember being 18. I was like, I remember being 18. I remember Jason crashing my red Aprilia bike when I was fucking... That's a good story. Man. When I was 16, you know, like, like, all of this stuff feels recent. And it's like, you know, you, you want to be young and you're like, fuck, you, 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 and you're like, we're like 30 fucking plus now, yeah, you know? And, yeah. and there he is. He probably still feels young at 55. But like life, it just, it just goes. Life's finite. So. It's fucking finite, man. And then I look at my mom, right, who is wayward and fucking traveling the world. And like, she's like legitimately a fucking modern day gypsy, like preaching the fucking, you know, I don't even know what the kind of new age philosophy is that she's like fucking throwing <laughs> around. But she's like absolutely fucking living every day for her is just bliss, you know? And she's yeah. so fucking happy. She has... I pay like, you know, I'm like her fucking financial aid. She doesn't earn like tons because, you know, she's my biggest liability, but she's also my biggest asset. And um, 
and she's just like the happiest in the world, you know? And, and I, I, like, I guess the one thing that's, I don't know, I guess really what I'm getting at is, um, one, I was going to say, maybe I could try to get JP on your guys' podcast, which would be fucking <laughs> yeah, insane. Would be crazy. Um, but the alternative is, is like, I think that the thing with drive and ambition is that it could needs be to be measured. Yeah, it needs to be measured because like you guys said, it's not to say that what it takes to go and do fucking X, like if you want to like really fucking optimize for it, it probably takes like fucking unreasonable investment. That's not to say that it's right. Yeah. Or that it's like the appropriate way to fucking approach it. You've got to, I think, optimize. And again, I'm saying this like not fucking, like, you know, not at all fucking doing what I'm saying, but I think the the best way to live is to optimize for fucking happiness. And, yeah. and happiness is a stupid fucking word. Like, <laughs> well, it could be around your values, oh, yeah. right? The thing is, yeah, purpose. And like, yeah. like you purpose know, are is you a fulfilled? Good word. Like, yeah. fulfilled. Do you fucking feel full? Like, like why do you wake up in the morning? That's uh, what everyone says. Why do you wake up in the morning? Like, what actually gets you through the day? And going back to purpose and drive. And yes. You have to be related to, you know, there's, there's opportunity. I mean, I was in the football game for 13 years, living in a shadow of my father. And I want to get out of that so badly. And I've started something now recently for, my, for myself, which is going to be super cool. And I'm, I'm actually vested, get up. I'm like, there's a lot more purpose in my day than just going through the motions. And it happens a lot. I think people, people fucking struggle with that sometimes. Yeah, people get trapped. People get trapped in the, the quagmires of like... Um, quagmires. What they, fucking, <laughs> what, they, what they think they have to... Like yeah. what's, what they think is expected of them, right? Or what they expect of themselves. Yeah. Like that's maybe the bigger one, right? Like what yeah. they expect of themselves. Like, yeah. These like fucking things that you prescribe, like you decide that you need to do this or whatever. Or like, this is like, what, like, and then sometimes that's not fucking actually in line with like your or value system or just like maybe just how you kind of emotionally responding to like your fucking day to day, you know, yeah. but we feel like we have to do it. Yeah. I'm trapped in that. I am, right? I'm a fucking- Is there, way, is there a way out? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also once you get to that, what's, what is ever going to validate gonna, to you? But then, a, then a donkey you, in the you carriage. You don't feel validated. chasing the carriage. Yeah, but a lot of people just love it. A lot of people love to work. Like your dad lo- loves it. So no, he my dad's he, super he, passionate about what he does. You always talk about how he doesn't have really other hobbies. So if he retired, what would he do? 100%. So, and, but there's, there's, there's two ways to look at that. You know, I look at it as cheap as i'm so jealous because you wake up every morning and you're frosting to you keen yeah. selling a, sell yeah. a pair of shoes yeah. and you know go, go out in the market and trade he's a trader and i think there's a lot of people out there that haven't found their niche mm. you know haven't found what they get up in the morning and get excited about you know yeah. I, I think that is something we need to dive deep into and, and push more mm. because it doesn't happen often is you know it's inter- it, I, I agree you, you we've actually we're in a space now where we're in a space now where I think it's socially acceptable, which it wasn't, by the way, like backdate, like fucking to our parents' age. Like yeah. it wasn't acceptable to yeah. have, like to be fucking, you did your shit, you yeah. got a job, that's your fucking Nine shit. Nine to five, right? come home. They also made repeats. way more than we fucking, they could buy houses and shit, you know yeah. what I mean? Like they were fucking, they, they were, you know, naturally just wealthier than we were because of the like, you know, period in time. Whereas now very few people are actually able to kind of like afford shit. But... I think that now it's actually the the the, 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 the information, the opportunity to kind of take up any interest, anything that you're fucking interested in. Yeah. You can learn about fucking anything, right? You can, within three clicks, get a download from some of the world's most fucking pedigree experts on whatever the fuck you want. If you want to become a piano player, you can <laughs> yeah. do that out of your fucking bedroom. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you need sure. to travel to fucking Austria and, like, <laughs> meet some fucking old dude that, like, probably is dead. You know what I mean? And he would teach you the piano. We have, like, so Endless much fucking access, yeah. right? And I think it's a good point. Like, it's actually really fucking courageous to follow your passions. I think it takes so much courage to say, you know what? It's not about what society thinks of me. It's not about like what my ego thinks about, what this externalized version of like me thinks of me, right? Like it's not like I'm just going to do what I know is going to give me some kind of like deep satisfaction, yeah. right? That's very personal and independent yeah. to me. I think that takes fucking courage. I think it's a good point. I think it's, a, I think it's something that more people should buy into and unfortunately sometimes that's not it's, it's, it's a luxury that sometimes not afforded to all of yeah. us but if you have the opportunity to do so which some of us do i think it's a i think it's a i think it's a really good notion yeah they always talk about do you know do what you love but some people don't have that 
availability. Some people have to pay the bills. So you do what yeah. pays for what you want to do. That's Correct. kind of always what they say. Correct. And I guess, I guess then the question is like, well, if you have a little bit of space, right? If you have the breathing room to potentially actually take, to take stock to like, if you could, if you've got the ability to build a little bit of perspective, maybe you should afford yourself the luxury of investing more time and energy into the things that truly make you happy, regardless yeah. of whether or not it's going to be financially sound or not. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Or whether or not you think like, you know, whatever the fuck, whatever fucking judgment matrix is like fucking occupying your shit. You know what I mean? It's going to kind of like come down on you, whatever it is like, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's are you doing anything outside of work in terms of like, we're talking about hobbies think, or sure. anything sort of, I remember, Dave, just, and sorry, how long ago was that hike you did? That six week, tell them that, tell them that story. <laughs> <laughs> tell us that story. <laughs> Let's do it. Because I mean, I think that speaks to his question. No. I think that speaks to his question. Yeah, like what are your personal interests outside so, of? Look, I mean, I wish I could say that hiking was like something that I did frequently, but I don't. Like I'm, I'm like an extreme personality by like, it's just the, it's it, it woven into my DNA. So I so can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> so when when I when I like when I when I so I did you cook and then halfway kind of like through I like started the thing with Ian Lelive and we like kind of managed to kind of get that going and then I was kind of like built like a little incubator thing and like with like some celebrities and then we did one or two projects with that <clears throat> and I was like what are you doing dude you haven't even taken any time to really think about like you're just fucking rolling with it you know what I mean you're just like a hamster like like you're just this is post you cook. Yeah, it was like kind of like, you know, toward... To, like, it was before the sale, right? Yeah, it was before the sale, but it was we knew it was coming. So it was like, um, I started like just frantically like... Looking for your next step. Sticking yeah. shit. Like, and I, and it, anyways, like, I mean, I, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to take, six, you know, six weeks off to like really, really kind of decompress in like fucking absolute, like, you know, just natural serenity. I'm just going to be disconnected but no phone go back yeah. to thailand yeah yeah <laughs> no, no, <so> this, <laughs> and it did i did it was, it was super cool so i mean look look for me some of the key things that i think would have stalled off the back of that journey was like one um super interesting getting to know people in space right like so when you have it's so it, we realize how superficial like our inter day-to-day interactions are with people right like we oh like hey man like how have you been like what's how like it, you have this like kind of like rehearsed yeah like fucking dialogue like it's the script that you run whenever you fucking see someone you haven't seen yeah. in a while what right? are you up to yeah. no you don't even remember fuck. what you said how yeah, are you're you like, yeah. ah, like oh we should like you know uh, anyway <laughs> <laughs> whatever like you get you've, you've got six weeks with the same fucking people that you don't know you have that conversation of 30 minutes you're walking with them every fucking minute of every day for six weeks okay so wait, where so was in context i mean yeah, yeah, was it a oh, six fuck. week hike <laughs> it's going i'm just uh, i'm going all over the so so i did a hike from uh from cedarburg through to otanique okay back. cool yeah so so we covered like 600 and something kilometers or like mountainous terrain so walking between like 15 and 20 kilometers <laughs> a day and uh, backpack like you know food water Sick. like whatever like fucking was like emaciated and like weighed 59 kilos on return like it was it was a proper fucking like fit like jury of phys- like journey of physical endurance so like i was um but yeah super interesting like look to be honest like the like a, like the interesting observations there were were like starting to kind of like get to know people without talking to them like you start to almost like and i, I don't want to get esoteric and like speak about like kind of like energetic shit but do it. You, 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 have, you, you have like this thing, man, where you, you you're silent because you're tired. Like yeah. Your backpack weighs like 25 kilos. You're walking up a fucking mountain. Like, you know, you're stopping for like an hour for lunch, but you're just walking for like fucking, you know, 10 hours in a day. But then you start understanding the essence of people, right? Sometimes like you have like a shared moment of observation where there's like, you're not like, oh, like, what are you? It's just like, you like witness something that's pretty like interesting or yeah. profound or like the sun is setting and everyone stops. And it was just this very, very interesting kind of like way to get to know people that felt like very real and authentic and like stripped of all of the shit. Yeah. Um, so that was fucking interesting. I didn't have, like I went there like being like, I'm going to go and come back knowing what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I, I didn't come back knowing that. Right. And I think that that's because, the truth of it is, 
sometimes it's important and even now like i'm in this thing and i think it's it's great and i really think that like we you know the the current model is exciting and it commercially makes sense and i think we're going to make a lot of money you know touch wood um but it's not like this was that this is like the one kind of like burning desire that exists yeah. deep within my heart that i just like you know that i have this real longing to kind of like dive into um i think like you know I think that sometimes that stuff comes with like real, real kind of like deep consideration and obviously like bias for action. You know, what is what the, the title of the podcast again? Give me the title. Uh, Dice Dice Monday. There we go. So like bias <laughs> for action is important, right? Like yeah. don't want to fucking like procrastinate constantly. But I do think that like even now, if I look like retrospectively look back, like I dived on an opportunity because the kind of commercial, there was like, you know, the Misho thing was happening social commerce was happening in India. Kind of like, I guess, HelloFresh was happening. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Pretty yeah. cool. Um, and I was like, look, fuck it. I mean, this is a narrative that I could sell. And we could sell it. We sold it for fuckloads, man. We sold it for, like, you know, it was second biggest pre-seed round ever in SA, right? Crazy investors. Nailed the fucking pitch. But I don't think that the 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 the, the kind of genesis of the idea or the kind of inspiration was like one that actually came from some kind of like aha moment yeah, or from yeah. like any kind of deep inspiration. Yeah. And if I look back now, I think that was a mistake. Can you elaborate on this new project? Or was it too early? Sure. Yeah. So we're doing, uh, so, I mean, I can like take the full download. We started and doing something else. Like I, like we realized quite quickly that the kind of like economics in the model that we were wanting to kind of target made no sense. Be, you know, and I, and I won't kind of go too much into that, but like social commerce, it's kind of like, you have like agents that become intermediaries that kind of like trade into the market. They inject trust into, I guess, kind of like transactions whereby there's low levels of e-commerce adoption. So instead of like take a lot selling to, you know, like Joel, you've got an agent that sells to Joel, but they order off take a lot. Yeah. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. So that's kind of like social commerce 101, right? So they, they become your kind of like business development agent flywheel, almost, inject yeah. trust into the transaction. Joel's never ordered off take a lot, but he, he trusts me. So yeah. that, that's all that matters, right? So that's kind of Misha that did very well, you know, multi-billion dollar business. This like cost of data here just makes no fucking sense. We should have realized that. We didn't. Anyway, so you can't use WhatsApp as like a marketing medium like these guys have done. So we worked that out and we were lucky. Again, maybe like you cook kind of like starvation mentality, like served me well. We spent like no money, right? Like I was like, we validated this shit on like fucking absolutely fucking, you know, smoke and fumes. Uh, and then we pivoted into something that was actually kind of, you know, I think very interesting, which was when we were like selling product into like the kind of like African, you know, um, I don't know, the, the, the emerging kind of like, you know, like market of merchants, you know, spazers and informal market salons and whatever else. We realized that like no one gave a shit about like user experience. No one gave it, you know, the only thing that was really, really kind of like meaningful was, was value, right? Like they just like, do you have the cheapest shit? If you do, we'll drive to you. I mean, cash and carry, man. Mm. Fucking, you know, they exist in one spot. Everyone drives them. They pick up. Why? Because they have the cheapest shit. That's similar. There's no customer experience there. There's yeah. AK-40 dudes with AK-47s at the fucking, at the door, right? People queue for what, one and a half hours to buy their, you know, six pack of soft and free for fuck's sake. Like, <laughs> it, the people care about money, yeah. right? They care about value because they're existing and it makes sense. They're yeah. physiological, you know, they're, they're they're trading, they're servicing their physiological means. Like, do I have enough food? They're counting the rands. So mm. we were like, shit, we need cheap stuff. <laughs> like, if we want to win here, we need cheap stuff. The byproduct of that notion, which is definitely the right notion, was trying to find avenues whereby we could source product at really affordable prices. And one of the things that kept cropping up because we were specifically focused on Afro salons, which is big market probably about twenty one thousand of these little independent micro merchants in SA was was fashion they actually wanted to sell fashion so all of them were like okay thanks for the cosmetics we want to sell fashion we want to sell like branded goods can you get us that shit well like fuck I mean you know we could but it's you know that's going to be expensive it's going to be expensive in fact it clearance as a product like as a product line so Roughly around 15% of global fashion inventories are either overstock or returns. That's wow. about $800 billion a year in fashion excess, sure. right? A lot of that stuff is archived. So if it's like luxury brands, they literally just warehouse it because they have enough money to do that. 
or people kind of shred, incinerate, and now there's a lot of kind of like off-price retailers that have also kind of like popped up as Otrium. There's a bunch of platforms that are like servicing that excess space. But what we was super fascinating, we connected with Bestseller, third biggest fucking fashion consortium in the world. And they were like, where are you guys trading? We're like, Africa. They were like, okay, well, you, you guys can have whatever the fuck you want. We're like, okay, like, we won't take, we're not, we, you know, we don't have big volumes. We're going to buy. And they're like, it's fine. It's trading in Africa. But, you know, one of two continents, South America and Africa, like people were interested in actually kind of selling product to us. And we were like, we looked at the price like 3% of retail. No size curve, no consistency, fucking, you know, mixed fucking, you know, mixed licorice, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. but a puffer jacket for $3. Crazy. You can't fucking beat that pricing, right? So, I was like, shit, I mean, if you look at TK Maxx and the success that that business had in like mm. Europe and the fucking US, they can't even get that shit. They, yeah. Brands won't sell them prime stock because they exist and they're on their doorstep. Why am I going to, Calvin Klein, I'm not selling you fucking last season's navy blue fucking sweater for, you know, I don't know, fucking 10 cents on the dollar for you to, you know, cannibalize the dude that would have otherwise bought that the next season's navy sweater yeah, from me. Yeah, like, it yeah. doesn't make any fucking sense. Perfect economic storm. You know, we've ASOS, uh, Ted Baker, Hugo Boss. I mean, the stuff that we've got fucking access to now, we've got, we've got shit on consignment. We've got 51,000 garments on consignment in our warehouse. We've just got another 51,000. We're buying that shit at between 3 and 5% of retail. Sure. Sure, there's no size curve. It's the most brand affinite climate in the world. Yeah, yeah. You go to Nigeria, you go to Kenya, you go to all they these love places. The they want fucking brands. This yeah. is authentic shit. Yeah. Tommy Hill figure, like from Styleco, which is a wholesaler out of you, all the fucking brands under the sun. We've got Dior fucking shoes that we're going to sell at 80% off to a customer that wants to buy fucking Dior shoes. We're <laughs> making 55% on those trades. So the fundamental economic principle of clearance inventory in Africa is very, very, very sound, right? What's very interesting on top of that as an off-price retail model which I think is a secret source, is your ability to leverage data and insights and predictive analytics in that space is absolutely fucking, like, fucking top of the pops, right? If, if you think about a traditional fashion retailer, everyone is emulating. So, like, it's fucking silhouettes, it's colors, it's, like, it's very specific things that the entire industry buys into and, and everyone follows. It's like a... It's an emulation game. Like high fashion sets it, then the big value players like H&M and Zara fucking mass produce yeah. it. And then the, to the whole market just fucking copies it, right? Like that's why like fashion is like trend based, right? Yeah. Because you're like, it, it, we're buying product. Like in our warehouse now, we have 98% unique garments. So 98% of the product are one-offs, right? <laughs> and I can tell you why that's fucking interesting is because... Yeah. If I walk into the store as a user, first of all, because it's a treasure hunt, like, you know, off the back of TK, TK Maxx, you have to hold a shitload of density. So in 500 square meters, we hold about 12,000 garments. That Jeez. is a fucking shit Crazy. ton, right? If you assume that 90% of those are unique, maybe a traditional store has got about 120 styles, yeah, okay? Yeah. Like, <laughs> the variance there is massive. Now, I'm a customer, I walk in, if I'm selecting from that stable of goods, I'm selecting... The one of. One of. I'm selecting unique garments. That gives you a very, very unique read on what that customer is interested in, yeah. right? Now, if I can take this, if I take that model and I extrapolate it, and I've got 100 stores, and, I, and like over time, I can understand user preference on a really fucking granular level. And then on the back end, when I'm pulling information into the system and I'm processing those garments, I'm picking up like micro detail down to the chrome zips the amount of exposure the logo has in the garment i can automate all of the things that make off-price retail difficult right i can automate fucking buying and planning i can score a manifest there's a hundred manifests from a hundred different fucking provider i can go okay well this asos manifest has an 86 percent chance of sale this is the rate at which it will sell these garments should be allocated to these stores because the customers that are buying from those stores have the highest affinity so this there's a crazy kind of like data optimization yeah. model whereby you can match like the perfect garment to the perfect customer which i think is super interesting because the whole narrative is waste reduction right the public narrative that we're raising off the back of is 
we can give the that garment impact, the best yeah. chance of resale because we understand the customer that was most likely to buy it. So that's kind of the narrative in a nutshell. The partnerships have been, yeah, we've had big brands that have kind of committed to this. First store rolls out and, and I call it a store, it's a hub because we've also got merchants that trade off the back of those stores. So the store is D to C, you know, direct to customer, but then it also acts as a depot for like micro merchants. Open in three weeks in Mitchell's Pen and Promenade Mall. And then we've got- Great mall, a lot of traffic there. Good mall, bro. Mall. And then we've got five in the next six months. And then look, the plan is to build a fucking, like a lot. Right? True we Africa. We want to build fucking 400. No, we'll do wholesale into the rest of the continent. Okay, okay. Uh, so I think you can do a lot of stores here. Um, but the plan is to scale with uh, wholesale. Like, I, What's the name of the brick and mortar store? Farrow. F-A-R-O. Oh, so it's Farrow, okay. Yeah. Yeah. My dad would be super interested in this. He was <laughs> in clothing for 40 years. Yeah, man. <laughs> but your natural, your, your It's crazy of- how you can dive into the data behind that whole model <laughs> and critique it to that exact person. It's nuts. Yeah. No, it's cool, dude. It's cool. So- I mean, eventually you can have like something like you... If you're big and you got a lot of shit, you can start building like a fucking per- like hyper personalized kind of like mobile commerce. Like imagine like if a WhatsApp because I think WhatsApp becomes like fucking Shopify, right? Like the rate at which WhatsApp's evolving is insane. Like the commerce functions that are coming to that platform, insane, right? I don't know if you've seen what's happening in there, but it, it's crazy. So when you're on WhatsApp, everyone like hundred percent, like you know, ninety-seven percent fucking penetration. It's the only digital platform that is fucking unanimously adopted across Africa, right? Yeah. Now you pop up. We know exactly what you fucking want because we don't even necessarily just like pick up on transactional data. We also grab qualitative data from you. So we do like fucking fun games, like, oh, trivia, rate your favorite brand, get 5% of your next fucking purchase, whatever, like hot or not, here's two images, pick one. Like all this shit, right? We fucking sync that shit. And then we go like, okay, sweet. Like now we've just got in another 100,000 units. These are the eight units that like, you know, are closest kind of to you. Do you want to kind of like pre-reserve those? Yes, cool. Now we send items to store not just based on kind of customer data based on people that are already reserved the item for fucking purchase you know what i mean i can think that how unique is it in that space how unique is it in that space is anyone else no one in africa is doing this shit bro and i think it's crazy because if i think it like if tk max cracked cracked like a fucking 16 billion dollar business there right where every brand is fucking available and, and people have a lot more cash here if I can sell the shit at 80% off, right? And I've got fucking CK and Tommy Hilfiger and fucking all those fucking brands and I can make that shit accessible to the African consumer, I think like, it's not, no one's doing it, right? There's local market recirculation. So there's guys like that are buying stuff from guy operators that exist within this market context. But the big brands don't really even have trade here. I mean like, what, Zara maybe has like 11 stores versus like, the 4,000 fucking 800 stores that it has globally. You know what I mean? So like yeah. Africa is nothing. It's a spec, right? Mm. It's a spec globally. And that's the biggest, that's what we're riding. We're riding that because they don't care. They don't care about selling this stuff here. It's like, oh, you know, fuck. Even if people do end up buying from Promenade rather than Waterfront, I mean, what is that? It's a rounding error, right? I'm not yeah. fucking global <laughs> balance sheet. We don't give a fuck. Anyways, now I'm just fucking yammering. No, that's <laughs> exciting though, that's- sure. It sounds sick. It sounds sick. But we have come to the end of the pod. It's been amazing to have you. And super interesting. But we have to ask you the question. (laughs) We always put um, the guy on the spot. But just something to give our listeners uh, some inspiration or motivation. They usually hear this on Thursday morning. Something to sort of give them a little bit of oomph. Diet starts Monday into the weekend, you know. Inspiration. Yeah. Motivation, or even guys that are looking to start up their own business, any advice or sure. something to leave the listeners with to take away? Okay. And it's always putting the guys on the spot. <laughs> no, it's good, man. It's good. Because I look, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of shit that, I, that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you just you, you want to say, and then you're like, ah, man, just saying that, or is that like actually stuff that I mean. believe in? Yeah. Um, I like that. If the context is like um, like new business stuff, I want to say that the that the climate that we're trading in at the moment, like the global kind of consumer climate, like consumer perception, kind of like one hundred and one, is like very much about stakeholder like kind of capitalism like it's okay to want to make money and that's fantastic 
But if you can find a solution that manages to satiate and um, positively benefit, like not just kind of shareholders or yourself, but, you know, the environment, your employee. Like, I think that like conscious business is, is the future because everything is transparent and ultimately like human beings are like, we're like value driven organisms, right? I think that fiduciary absolutism or like, you know, winning at all costs is like not going to be acceptable as we like kind of step into this like very, very kind of like new future. So when building something, make sure that it has some kind of, some kind of purpose that like creates value, not just for you or the people that are funding you would be my, um, Perfect. Amazing way to cap off that episode. Thank you again so much for joining us. Cool, man. Super interesting. We really appreciate it. I know our listeners are going to enjoy that one. And yeah, shout out to those listeners. Thank you for following us and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Sweet. Cheers. Cool.